Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcast, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Society and Politics in the Maghreb series and was recorded on January 13th, 2020 at the Centre d'études Maghrebina Tunis, CEMAT. In this episode, Janine Clark, professor of political science at the University of Toronto, talks about centralization and decentralization in the Middle East. Hi there, and thank you so much for having me here today. I'm very excited to talk about some of the research I've done recently. Um, let me begin by talking about what decentralization is in general. Basically, decentralization involves the devolution of powers from the top down to the bottom. And the whole idea is that municipal governments are able to make more informed decisions and are more accountable to their populations than the central government is due basically to the fact that of their proximity to the people that they are serving. So a municipal government is supposed to be able to use local knowledge and know about local needs. And, and most importantly, a municipal government ideally is able to engage and integrate the decisions, advice and decisions of the local population into decisions regarding their lives, whether it be garbage collection or whatever it may be. So decentralization is really meant to make life not only better in terms of uh, services, um, but also more democratic in terms of greater input. So I wanted to look at decentralization in Morocco um, and Jordan um, because they're both very interesting cases. In many ways, Morocco and Jordan have lots in common, but the one way in which they very dramatically differ is that Morocco has been slowly decentralizing Uh, for quite some years, whereas Jordan really only initiated a decentralization law a few years ago. And in fact, the entire time throughout its history uh, that Morocco was decentralizing, we see Jordan has actually been increasingly centralizing. So two very different ways of dealing with local government, with Jordan increasingly centralizing until it finally passed its uh, decentralization law a few years ago, and with Morocco increasingly decentralizing. So I really want to understand why did the two states take very different approaches towards local government? And there really isn't a lot written on decentralization in the Middle East at all or in North Africa at all, primarily because it's a fairly new phenomenon here. And if you actually look at other parts of the world to see what's happening there, it doesn't help much in terms of understanding what's going on here. One of the reasons why is quite simply that when most of the countries of the world decentralized, they initiated local elections for the first time. But in Jordan and Morocco, both these countries have had local elections, municipal elections for a long, long, long time. And so decentralization is being initiated after a long history of electoral politics. So that um, would change the dynamics. Yeah, my study takes place um, between 1955 in Jordan up to 2015. During this time, Jordan steadily uh, centralized each one of its um, municipal laws, actually took away powers from uh, from municipalities. Um, and it goes on, my studies goes from 1955 to 2015. I stop in 2015 because that's when Jordan actually initiates a decentralization law. And those are also the dates I look at in Morocco from the time of Morocco's independence to, of course, 2015. And within this time period, I'm focusing largely on the 2007 municipal elections in Jordan and the 2009 municipal elections in 
Morocco. So I wanted to look at uh, basically why do governments decide to decentralize? And secondly, what is the impact on the ground? And thirdly, what does that that impact on the ground mean back again for regime stability? And at the heart of it is, if you look at the literature on decentralization, it's very interesting. Decentralization has had very mixed results around the world. Wherever it's, it's worked in some countries, work, not worked in other countries, but even where it has worked, it's, it's had mixed results within that country. It's worked in some areas and not in other areas. And there's been lots of criticism that decentralization has been um, sort of, uh, there's been a phenomenon of what they call elite capture. That in fact, when these powers are devolved to the local level, local elites are able to capture all these powers and use them for own purposes and actually make themselves more powerful. And in fact, you do not end up having better service delivery and certainly do not end up having necessarily better democracy. So there's this whole question of when does decentralization work? Why would regimes initiate something that takes away power from the central government and give it to others? And it, this swings back to the question of uh, the issue, rather, of elite capture, because there's certainly many scholars who would say regimes actually decentralize because they want elite capture, that elite capture actually helps them keep in power. So it's a very confusing array of literature of what on earth happens when you decentralize. But if we base it on the premise that decentralize, that authoritarian regimes or electoral autocracies that we have in the Middle East are often called electoral authoritarian regimes that much of the Middle East and North Africa have. If we base it on the, the assumption that electoral autocracies either centralize or decentralize because they're trying to stay in power, it still begs the question, when do you do, when do regimes do one strategy and when do they do the other strategy? If presumably uh, the Jordanian regime engaged in centralization for many, many years, retained regime stability, why then did Morocco engage in decentralization in order to retain regime stability? I asked, as I said, three questions. The first is the basic question is, when do uh, regimes choose to decentralize? Under what conditions? Uh, the second question is, what happens, basically, when it uh, goes down to the ground, um, to the municipal level? What are the dynamics that happen there? And thirdly, what do these dynamics mean for regime stability back up at the top? And I'm basically going to make three arguments. So I'm going to argue that whether or not an authoritarian regime decides to decentralize or not is determined by their coalition strategies. Most regimes, whether in the Middle East or North Africa or anywhere in the world, have various um, strategies or let's call them coalitions with certain societal groups that help maintain them, keep them in power. And so it's these coalition strategies, how they view these strategies that is the overall framework in which they will determine whether or not to decentralize. Whether or not decentralization results in elite capture at the local level, elite capture as opposed to um, civil society and the local population getting greater um, voice in decision-making. So whether or not elite capture occurs is really a reflection of the perceived opportunities that, this, that decentralization reforms offer to local elites to pursue their interests. 
And what those opportunities are perceived as being is to a large extent determined by the degree to which parties lie within the regime's network of patronage. And as a consequence, the degree to which they are dominated by and rely on patron clientelism. In other words, I found that in the case of regime supportive parties, decentralization offered numerous opportunities for elite capture. And it's in these municipalities dominated by regime supportive parties that elite capture is the norm. In other words, decentralization, as intended by the World Bank or any other sort of international organization, did not take place. However, in the municipalities dominated by opposition parties, and if we're looking at, for example, the case of Morocco, during the time of study, not so much now, the most important opposition party was the um, PJD, the Party of Justice and Development. So if we're looking at opposition parties, these parties actually saw political opportunities in granting civil society the role given to it according to decentralization. So frozen outside of sort of regime networks of patronage, opposition parties look at decentralization with a different set of eyes. And since some powers are definitely still um, devolved down to municipal level, they take advantage of these powers. And in fact, what you find where the opposition parties are, they're able to use decentralization. And you do, in fact, see decentralization being implemented as theoretically it's supposed to be more voices being brought into into decision-making and greater service delivery. So my third argument would be, now looking at all this at the bottom, I would actually argue that decentralization actually stabilizes authoritarian regimes um, while centralization has a destabilizing effect. Um, And that's contrary to what much of the literature would say around the world. And of course, most of my work was done on Jordan and Morocco. I did... Um, interviews in in municipalities with mayors and other local, uh, other municipal councillors um, in municipalities across both countries, as well as various government, um, did tours of both countries, and then, of course, and compared them against each other, and I also compared the two countries. Okay, so why to begin with the case of Morocco? Um, Morocco introduced uh, decentralization four phases, each one issuing a different municipal charter, and each one granting local power, greater local powers to municipal councils. So the most important one would be the most recent one, or at least for this study, 2009, in which local um, councils were, or or municipalities are expected to do local actions to mobilize citizens, develop public conscious, improve the environment, and help create local associations. But they also importantly have to establish a consultative committee for equity and equal opportunities. And that in this committee, there's supposed to be people from local associations and civil society who give their opinion. Thirdly, municipal councillors have to create local development plans, and these local development plans must partially be based on the feedback from these consultative committees that are made up of the heads of civil society, etc. That's where you see the democratic element, and it's right in the, const- uh, the local charter. So Morocco really has had four, as I said, municipal charters. Uh, the most important ones would be 1976 um, and then 2002 and then 2009. But what we really see with each of these charters is, I would say, the regime is it's an attempt for the regime to bring more people into the political process and be able to legitimize itself as a political reformer. But then at the same time, having brought more people into the political process, you're also putting the blame for the economic crisis 
on the so-called municipal elected councils, because now they've been given power, why haven't they solved the problems? For me, what we see is decentralization is a way for authoritarian regimes to really step aside and put the blame elsewhere and at the same time look more legitimate themselves. So I think one of the big differences, if we look at the 76 Charter, this is really a charter, I would argue, with an eye towards seducing opposition parties into the government. And the difference between 2002 and 2009 charters, where here um, regime is really trying to bring the growing number of, number of civil society activists into the political system. But in both cases, what the purpose of decentralization is to bring voices into the system, as I said, help bolster the legitimacy of the regime as the um, king, as a political reformer, and also then place the onus, as I said, of the economic crisis elsewhere. Someone else is supposed to now fix this. They have been given the tools through decentralization to do so, apparently. So basically, the 76 Charter was really an attempt to broaden the regime's coalition strategies after the attempted coups of 1971 and 1972. There had been two coup attempts in 1971 and 72, and they were conducted by the Berber-dominated military, and um, which had been the primary, so let's say, coalition partner of the regime at that time. Um, and so what we see after 72 is an attempt to broaden the coalition strategy so that the regime was not as tied strictly to the Berber elite in terms of gaining legitimacy. So the monarchy after 72 tries to expand its coalition beyond the Berber elite and tries to woo the nationalist parties, the nationalist parties that had fought to get rid of the French. And that would include the Istiklal, the biggest nationalist party, the head of the nationalist movement, into the system. And this is a real switch because until... Uh, basically 76, the Istiklal and the uh, regime, the king, had very much been at odds in terms of how much power the king should really be having in the post-independent system. And it's, and in fact, the Istiklal had been boycotting the political system for 15 years up until this point against sort of the, the, the king. And the king uses, the regime uses the 1976 municipal charter to try to bait or, you know, or lure the opposition parties into participating into the 1976 elections and following that the 1977 elections and bring them in the system. So the king in many ways completely reverses his previous coalition strategy and reaches out to the nationalist parties. And of course, the peak of this is a little later. Moroccan specialists will know it. it's called Alternance, and it's 1997. And it's the rotation of prime ministers um, with the opposition parties being allowed to head the ruling, ruling coalitions in government and hold the position of prime minister for the first time. So the 76th Charter greatly extends the powers of municipalities by granting them greater responsibility for management of local affairs. Presidents, for example, could now manage, manage the budget and presidents of municipalities were made heads of municipal staff, so they had some hiring powers. Local elites were very keen to take care of these, to take advantage of these powers. Certainly, municipal government offered local elites new opportunities and resources to manage economic affairs and to enhance and enlarge their patron clientele networks. So many local elites jumped to now participate in these local, new local elections. On the other side, national-level parties were also really keen of the, um, to take advantage of, local, um, of the local elites. They wanted to set up party cells everywhere. 
Um, prior to that, there had been elections, but no, nothing really of interest for the parties. So now we have suddenly parties being really interested. They can set up cells everywhere. They have an opportunity to sort of capture local elites and their resources and their clients and get votes and et cetera. So even the Istiklal eagerly establishes local party branches throughout the countries, municipalities. And the impact is really significant in the 70s, and it's to the monarch's benefit. Um, in many ways, the 76 Charter weakens and defangs the opposition parties. Um, certainly, up until now, we've seen the monarchy using all sorts of arbitrary political appointments, gift exchanges, personal favors, family ties, and all sorts of other forms of patronage to create pro-regime parties. Um, and also to integrate people into the political system. And, politi- and patron clientelism, definitely by the 70s, was al- already fully ingrained as a modus operandi for political elites, and patron clientel networks permeated pro-regime political parties. So following the 76 elections, we see these newly elected local elites take over the local branches of the opposition parties, and they rise to the ranks. They soon come to dominate the so-called opposition parties, and they in fact end up playing important roles in curbing any former criticism of the palace. So opposition parties simply become less oppositional. Other local elites, the other effect is that other local elites begin to start to jump from party to party. What they're looking for is better connections and networks to access this patronage, um, to access resources. And they also end up weakening opposition parties and transporting opposition parties, just like the pro-regime parties were long had long been patron-client networks, not really parties, but just these networks of patron clientelism. Now we find is various local elites jump from party to party looking for resources. They also transform opposition parties into mere chains of patron clientelism as resources from the political center are transferred down to local elites and eventually to their clients. And then also local elites bring their clients into the system via votes. And Moroccans call this transhumance, which literally means grazing, how political uh, politicians graze from party to party. But what it does is undermine any sense of distinction between the political parties. It really makes no political party an opposition party as more and more parties just become part of patronage, um, it means that parties also have no platforms, nothing to distinguish them whatsoever. So what 76 does is really defang all opposition parties and create this system where more parties are just all about patron clientelism. It, but it does what the regime intended. It brought the opposition into the system successfully. So if the, So by 1990s, All political parties, if not the entire political system, was largely discredited. Um, With the economic situation was struggling, uh, with no improvement in sight. Um, Then King Hassan dies, and the current king, Mohammed VI, he comes to power in 1999. He really has to find a new way of legitimizing the regime. Um, And he uh, announces this new concept of authority um, when he first comes to power, one requiring the involvement of citizens in the search for solutions and the execution of responsibilities. And for the, at the beginning, he openly stresses the importance of human rights, freedom of speech. Um, and he, most importantly, he embraced the international development discourse of participation, decentralization, good governments, and gender equity. And it's in this context he originally um, introduces, originally greater freedoms of association. And we see large numbers of civil society associations not related to the regime or any political party mushroom. 
course, some of the most important of these were women's human rights and development NGOs. The 2002 Charter was created as part of the new concept of authority. It doesn't last very long because, um, again, in 2003 and 2007, Morocco suffered a series of terrorist attacks. And so the 2009 Charter was brought in shortly after that. And the 2009 Charter, as I mentioned earlier, devolves even more to the local governments. Um, And civil society, as I mentioned, is meant to be brought in through these consultative councils. At the same time, I think it's important to mention it's around this time period that King establishes the National Initiative for Human Development. It's the largest development association in the whole country. And again, it's based on these premises of bringing local voices in. And part, many of the programs, not all of the NIHD, are that it grants civil society organizations funds. Um, Civil society organizations can apply for them. Um, It's a bottom-up process in which they submit their proposals. It moves all the way up through the committee and eventually to the provincial level, and they can receive money to do projects at the local level. All of it, again, reflects the principles of good governments, um, and civil society representatives are included at all levels of decision-making. So before I go move on then, before I continue the story with Morocco, I'd like to then switch over to Jordan. So whereas Morocco entered independence with a strong uh, state system, Jordan did not. I mean, Jordan really created, was created at the fall of the Mar- Ottoman Empire after World War I, and its early history is one of state-building and nation-building. And of course, the local tribes played a very, very important role at this. At the beginning of the British Mandate, Transjordan, as it was called then, comprised several tribal units or chieftaincies, and they each operated independently. And they served, the tribes served the main source of solidarity and identity, and they structured all local economic and social relations, and they provided security. So the British saw as their main task as a state nation-building task into bringing tribes into the newly created state um, with the newly created foreign monarch, um, from King Abdullah I, who was actually from a powerful tribe in what is today modern-day Saudi Arabia. And King Abdullah I was brought in as the head of the institutions and uh, programs. So the, the British were very quite successful in creating the state of Jordan. And, 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 this, and the, within that, as I said, the tribal sheikhs became very important political and econo- economic actors. And they were fully entwined in the state structures and identified with state interests by the time of independence. And Tell refers to this as the Hashemite Compact. Um, the compact bound the rural Transjordanian tribes to the regime, um, the king, and linked the monarchy to the tribes, as the success of the monarchy had been largely dependent upon the tribes. So much like in Morocco, prior to 1972, the monarchy in Jordan had one coalition partner, the Transjordanian tribal elite that I mentioned. In 1956, the monarchy faced an alleged attempted a coup from members within the Transjordanian-dominated military. So fairly parallel to what happened to Morocco in the 70s. But the Jordanian response to the alleged attempted coup was very different from that of the Moroccan monarchy. In fact, the king imposed martial law, and then rather than expand the societal coalition, coalition, rather than bring more people into the system the way the Moroccan regime had, what we actually see in Jordan is the Jordanian regime further invests in its one coalition partner. Now, certainly the monarch's decision to do so has to be put in context of the ongoing waves of Palestinians into Jordan. 
as a result of the 48 war with Israel. 70,000 Palestinians fled to Jordan. Uh, with 67 war, we have 250,000 Palestinians come to Jordan. And certainly we start to see Transjordanians starting to become increasingly sensitive to Israeli claims that Jordan is Palestine and increasingly resentful of Palestinians, particularly after the Palestine Liberation Organization began launching attacks against Israel from Jordan following the 1967 war. So following the alleged attempted coup, we see the king increasingly focuses attentions on the rank and file of the army, his real source of power, and grant greater perks and privileges to army members, the vast bulk of which were Transjordanians and not Palestinians, who loyal, whose loyalties were perceived to lie outside Jordan. So by the 1970s, the privileging of Transjordanians extended to all state institutions, such that Transjordanians overwhelmingly dominated jobs in the government, civil service and army, and Palestinians dominated the private sector. In this context, the Jordanian regime increasingly centralized in order to enable it to distribute resources to Transjordanians. So we can see this centralization manifest itself in at least two ways. First, we simply see the removal of powers from municipalities to the central governments, the exact opposite of what's happening in Morocco. Uh, whereas 19, the 1955 municipalities law granted 39 responsibilities to municipalities, by 2007, um, 13 of these responsibilities have been taken away. And many of the other responsibilities, while they were on paper, they were no longer happening in practice. Uh, second, second centralization was reflected in the cr creation of new governorates and new municipalities that enabled the central powers to create geographic administrative divisions along ethnic lines and to favor Transjordanian municipalities, particularly those dominated by powerful tribes um, over others, via the transfer of resources. Basically, the central government collects um, most taxes and then redistributes them. So quite simply, the central government increasingly became able to direct resources, both in terms of their actual budgets and in terms of facilities, such as hospitals, to municipalities according to ethnicity. Um, and this favoritism continued even though by the mid-1990s, fewer than 50% of the municipalities in Jordan could cover employees' salaries and provide basic services. And there were actually call, internal calls demanding greater decentralization. But this centralization continued even after Jordan's structural adjustment program and the privatization program began in the 1990s. And by 2007, Jordan's hyper-centralization surpassed most, most countries in the world. So unlike Morocco, what we see is this ongoing centralization for a long time in Jordan. And it was really driven by the monarch's attempts to preserve what you could call a political and democratic balance, an attempt to keep the correct political and economic balance between Transjordanians or Jordanians of Jordanian descent and the Palestinian populations. And then later, increasing Islamists, who after political, political liberalization in 1989, began running in elections. So what we've seen so far is, as a result of their coalition strategies, it made sense for the Moroccan regime to decentralize, whereas as a result, its decision not to expand its coalition, we see the Jordanian regime centralized throughout this time period. So if I shift to my second question about what's, um, and I look at Morocco again, what happens at the micro level? What happens at the municipal level now that decentralization has occurred? 
Um, do we get a leak capture or when do we get a leak capture and you know, why and when not? When does decentralization, quote unquote, work? And as I said before, I'm going to argue that elite capture does or not work, whether it works or not, is really a reflection of the perceived opportunities that decentralization reforms offer to local elites. If you're part of a larger patron-clientel networks, um, elite capture happens. There are opportunities within decentralization for elite capture not only to happen, but to expand these uh, patron-clientel ties. But at the same time, if you're frozen out of these patron-clientel ties, there are ways in which decentralization actually works, and you can, in fact, take advantage of them that way. So for those um, administrative, what are called administrative or pro-regime parties in Morocco, which are by and large mere chains of patron-clientelism, decentralization grants them not only opportunities to continue business as usual, but potentially expand their power and thereby their wealth. So decentralization simply offers pro-regime or administrative parties numerous opportunities at municipal level to deepen, expand patron clientelism. And this is done through a variety of ways. One way is quite simply the 2009 municipal charter is written in very vague terms. And most importantly, it essentially allows councillors to wear multiple hats, so to speak, at the same time, and therefore to amass decision-making powers at the expense of civil society voices. One councillor can simultaneously be the head of the NGO and can sit as an NGO representative on the Council for Equity and Equal Opportunities within the municipality. More than that, that same councillor can vote on which municipalities, moreover, that same councillor can vote on which NGOs will get municipal funds. In addition, that very same councillor can also sit as the head of the NGO on the NIHD committees, the National Initiative for Human Development Committees that the King runs, and there to also vote on who gets NIHD funding. So what you have is, because it's very vaguely written, in the end, all decisions are made by a small group of elites within each municipality. They establish NGOs and use their powers to ensure that their clients, who are now all called NGO members, continue to support them. Decentralization simply allows the large networks of patron clientelism from top to bottom to continue. But if we look at opposition parties that are frozen outside of these networks or chains of patron clientelism, we see very different opportunities. And I'm going to focus on the municipalities run by the Islamist Party of Justice Development as it was the main opposition party, the only opposition party at the time of study. And we have to, what the Peche Day did, we really have to understand um, the larger context um, as a result of the 2003 bombings I mentioned earlier. Um, following the bombings that happened, the first ones in 2003 and then 2007, they were, the Peche Day was actually accused of or blamed for the attacks, for the terrorist bombings. They were actually committed by individuals from a radical Islamist group, but several political parties called for the Peche Day's dissolution and painted it as a radical group and blamed it for the attacks. So the PJD lost a lot of public support. And even though it initially had had very high hopes for the 2003 municipal elections, it actually performed very poorly. So the PJD embraces a new strategy and essentially begins at the local level to present itself as a technocratic party. We start to see after the bombings, it downplays at the local level, references to religion, it emphasizes its skills, 
It's a practical ability to solve problems, its effectiveness, and its cleanness. So in this sense, after 2003, at the local level, the PJD begins very much to embrace or reflect the monarchy's technocratic discourse of good governance. And the route to which the PJD wants to prove its technocratic competence is via civil society. And it starts putting far greater emphasis on civil society work at the local level as a means of demonstrating to the public that it is effective, professional, and not radical. So local branches of the PJD uh, were instructed to work in civil society and most importantly in any civil society organization. It doesn't have to be an Islamist one. So between 2003-2009, the PJD increasingly establishes or enters civil society organizations where they work together with non-Islamist activists, the very same activists who have been empowered by the monarchy's international human rights discourse I mentioned that came in, that the monarchy started using after 1999. And this is really an important strategy that begins to pay off in the 2009 elections. The PJD wins largely as a result of coalitions with civil society actors. Coalitions cemented on the fact that they have shown that at least when it comes to issues of development, the PJD and other civil society actors have the same values. And this coalition is also based on the spoken and unspoken promise that should the PJD be elected, it would fulfill the charter and grant civil society actors the decision-making powers accorded to them in the 2009 charter, meaning they would bring independent civil society activists into these councils for equity and equal opportunity and listen to their advice for the creation of local development plans. So what's interesting, if we look at 2009, we see a lot of the municipalities in which the PJD ran, um, the head of the Islamist electoralist was sometimes a non-Islamist, or the list, in fact, was a a mixed list of Islamists and non-Islamists, all of whom were prominent civil society actors. So it's in this way the PJD appealed to those activists who've been empowered by the monarchy's discourse but refused to join the administrative parties that were entangled in patron clientelism. So what we see is the PJD perceives a very different set of opportunities to gain power. It's from the same charter, but there are very different opportunities. And it really transforms itself in the 2009 elections into a party of and on behalf of civil society and fulfills the actual spirit of the charter. And it's because of that it's able to come to power. So what does this all mean? If we look at these micro-level changes, what do they mean for macro-level regime stability? So I'm going to argue very briefly that decentralization in Morocco has had a stabilizing, has a stabilizing effect for authoritarian regimes in general. I'm going to argue that has a stabilizing effect. Um, first of all, we have to keep in mind that while certain powers were devolved, um, decentralization did not mean a, a lessening of state control in any way in Morocco. Pa- much of the power was devolved to appointed governors who have tremendous powers of tutel, the ability to approve or reject municipal decisions in many cases. So decision, um, and at the same time, these powers of the governor, just like the charter itself, were are quite um, vague. The governor can actually get involved in a lot of things. So we have to keep in mind that state control was not actually eliminated. Governors have vast powers. One study shows that approximately 70% of the governor's roles and prerogatives are similar to those of the municipalities. 
So this huge overlap and confusion means that governors can step into a lot of areas should they choose to. The second is that, is that, as I discussed earlier, decentralization allows the regime to maintain the patron-client system upon which pro-regime parties are built intact and therefore helps keep the pa- greatest patron of them all, the king, securely at the top. Third, counselors' corruption and ineptitude. Really perceived decentralization, as we said, allows counselors to engage in um, elite capture and do whatever they want, often leading to more ineptitude, poor services, etc. So on the one hand, it allows the state to sort of point to local counselors as the problem why there are poor service deliveries. But on the other hand, it also allows the state to swoop in and rescue the citizens of the municipality from their elected counselors by bringing in a regime-initiated equalization program or bringing in a very large NIHD project. So what we find is by allowing opportunities for pro-regime elites to capture power and resources, decentralization ensures that municipalities continue to be highly dysfunctional to stay the least, to say the least, corruption continues to be rampant and services to continue to be poor or inequitable. And this works to the monarch's favor. The king can essentially rescue citizens from their own elected officials. Okay, the final reason why I say decentralization can be stabilizing is the PJD itself. While the PJD's route to power in the 2009 elections may have displaced some pro-regime parties, it in no way unsettled the monarchy. In fact, its entire discourse of good governance reinforced the discourse of the monarchies. And in that sense, too, even uh, even though it may have one kicked some certain pro-regime parties out of power in a limited number of municipalities, it ultimately, through its discourse, actually stabilizes the authoritarian regime. Finally, I'm going to turn to Jordan and say, now, when we've had all this centralization at the local level at Jordan, what does all that mean? I'm going to argue that, in fact, it's created greater decentralization in a context of decreasing funds, um, we find that there's actually greater competition between regime, pro-regime tribes for not only fewer funds, but fewer access points to get those funds. Centralization is actually um, increased competition between tribal elites for access to power and to get things done. Um, and in fact, what it has meant that more and more mayors to actually get the things they need, uh, turn to the king in person for help. So we find when the, the king visits, more and more people requesting things. Um, it's personalized the system by which people can actually get a hospital or get something done. So centralization created greater competition. In fact, it's a system in which more people beg for the king's help, but at the same time, the king does not look like a reformer. Okay, I just want to conclude then by saying that despite its apolitical, technocratic discourse, decentralization is an inherently political tool, and decisions to decentralize are embedded within issues of power and political conflicts. Authoritarian regimes implement decentralization as a means of maintaining political control. Yet the success of decentralization as a political tool is that it links with the aspirations of local elites. Local elites have their own agency, and elite capture, or the lack of it, is a result of local elites pursuing their own interests. 
Elite capture relies on, relies on voters who cast their ballots based on clientel ties, political actors who establish or join parties based on similar clientelistic incentive, incentives, and regimes that base their rule on coalition strategies that foster these clientelistic ties and incentives. How local elites determine their political interests vis-a-vis good governance and decentralization reforms is determined largely by the extent to which they can benefit from and take advantage of the patron clientel ties that underpin the authoritarian regime. And what I add to that is the fact that the PJD fulfilled the charter as intended under the World Bank's conceptualization of good governments reform is not necessarily due to the fact that the PJD are the right hands, that power somehow fell into the right hands, whereas pro-regime parties represent the wrong hands. This is really not a question of the right or the wrong hands. It really is a question of the fact that decentralization, the way it's established, offers a variety of opportunities. The PJD and other parties were simply taking advantage of the opportunities offered to them. So decentralization, the planning of it, it's important that what's looked at is what incentives or opportunities does decentralization offer to those on the ground. The contest is extremely important to understanding um, who is going to benefit and how they're going to benefit from decentralization and what that means for uh, regime stability at the top. Neither decentralization nor centralization are meeting the needs of the local populations. Yet, whereas the poor state of municipal service delivery has the potential to destabilize the authoritarian regime under centralization, I'm going to argue that counterintuitively, poor service delivery under decentralization has the potential to, and in the case of Morocco, does stabilize the authoritarian regime. In Morocco, just to conclude, decentralization enables the king to be perceived as a significant political reformer, at least during the time period I was studying, downloading power and responsibilities to municipalities, and most importantly, providing municipalities with the tools to help themselves. Even as municipalities fail in their service delivery tasks, the king retains the image of a political reformer as he is forced to step in and rescue citizens from their municipal plight. To the contrary, during the period of centralization in Jordan, as Jordan now does have a decentralization law, Centralization served to undermine the political system, specifically political parties, and reinforce tribalism while simultaneously making the latter less effective as a source of regime stability. At the same time, a king under centralization is not a reformer, giving municipalities greater tools to help themselves. Instead, the king remains the greatest patron of all, but one which his subjects increasingly see as not doing enough or not doing enough equally to all. Thank you for listening to Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghrib in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CIMAT newsletter at www.cimatmagrib.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghrib Studies. See you soon for a new episode.